0: You've got a Bible? You can open to First Peter, chapter one. We're still in chapter one. We've been working our way through First Peter for some time now, taking a look at what Peter has to say to us about what it looks like to live as sojourners in this land, in this country. So we're living as sojourners here in this country as we wait for our true country. In the last couple of weeks or several weeks, we've been looking at a text toward the end of First Peter one, as we've considered what it looks like to live lives of holiness. What does holiness look like as it gets pressed out into our lives? Where does it come from? And over the course of these last several weeks, we said holiness is not the keeping of a list of rules or just being a good person, but it's looking to God and offering all that we are and all that we have in his service, saying, God, you own me twice over. You created me and you bought me. Everything that I have is yours. There is no area of my life. There is no, uh, there's no crook or crevice in my life that you don't have access to. I'm not leasing space to you any longer. We've also said that holiness is, not, is, is connected to our hope. And so we have to turn our minds on and think toward what is to be one day and work backwards to what should be today. So we think about what's coming in the future and our glorious hope of the restored, renewed creation of God making everything new and everything right so we work backwards from that to consider how we should live in the here and now. We've said also our holiness involves a particular resistance of our former passions and our reverence or a fear of God that we, that we operate with, a holy fear that we have in our lives. And it requires us to radiate our hearts with the reality of our ransom we saw last week. And so we were ransomed from Satan's sin and death, and we were ransomed by the blood of Jesus, and we were ransomed to be free from the futile ways that we've inherited, both culturally and personally from those who have come before us and we were ransomed and freed so that we might enjoy God forever that he might be our treasure and our hope and our trust might be in him So we've looked at all these aspects of holiness, and up to this point, Peter's kind of talking in a lot of generalities about what holiness actually looks like, how it gets fleshed out in our lives. He said, you should be holy for God is holy, but he hasn't talked about very specific commandments that we should engage in keeping in order to exhibit that kind of holiness. But in this text that we come to this morning, he kind of begins to push on some of those specifics about what a holy life looks like in the life of a sojourner, someone who doesn't belong here. This world is not their home. They're waiting for an abiding city, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 13. One that will last forever. So in this text that we look at this week, we come to to this text where there's a specific command, but then there's also, Peter gets up underneath that command and he gives us a cause, right? A cause for that command. Why should you live this way? Why should you act this way? And in fact, I would submit to you today that the cause that Peter pushes on in this text, is the cause underneath all of our holiness. Every command in Scripture, there's a cause underneath it. And what Peter says is the cause underneath all the commands in the Bible, underneath all of holy living that we are called to, to be holy as God is holy, is the new birth. It's being born again. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, we'll read down through verse 25 together. And Peter writes these words. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since, verse 23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of the grass The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news, Peter says, that was preached to you. Now this week we want to take a look at not the command that Peter gives us in the text for what holiness begins to look like in our lives, but we want to get underneath and look at that cause out of which all the other commands are flowing. Okay? So in 1999, I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, Bruce Willis, a pretty well-known actor, but he played a starring role in a movie called The Sixth Sense. Many of you may have seen that movie, The Sixth Sense, right? Bruce Willis played Dr. Malcolm Crowe, who was a child psychologist. And he got connected with a young man named Cole. And Cole had a, was a very troubled young child uh, because he had a particular ability to see who, what? He saw dead people, right? He saw these ghosts hovering around um, in all the places that he went. And so he saw, he saw dead people, which would probably create a pretty troubling experience for you as well as a child. I would imagine it would for me. So he sees dead people. And over the course of this therapeutic relationship that he enters into with Dr. Crow, he begins to engage some of these ghosts and talk to them and help them kind of tie up unfinished business, right, so they can depart from this world. But what Cole sees is he sees these dead people who are unaware that they are are dead, but they're living and walking around and conducting affairs in their lives just like they were alive, but they're actually dead. And by the end of the movie, spoiler alert, right, uh, Dr. Crow comes to realize he's been one of those as well. All this time he has thought that he was alive, but in fact, in reality, he's dead. He's dead. And listen, there are churches scattered across the globe in our community and across the world in which there are individuals who are shown up in services just like this on Sunday mornings in all different kinds of churches who think with all of their hearts that they're alive, but in fact, they are actually dead. They are actually dead in all kinds of churches, right? In big churches and in small churches, in traditional churches and contemporary churches, in churches that have very formal and high liturgies, in churches that have really no discernible liturgy whatsoever, in churches that sing hymns and choruses and some that are tied to mainline or evangelical denominations and others that have no ties to any denomination whatsoever. Somewhere 20 minute sermons are preached and somewhere 50 minute sermons get preached frequently as well. Right, All kinds of churches, some caught up with lots of emotion, and some that are completely tied up and wrapped around logic. But in all of these churches, no matter what shape, size, or color they may be, there are individuals who believe that they are living and they're conducting themselves as if they are living when in fact they are actually dead. Some have had their emotions stirred or their curiosity piqued by the particular churches that they've been attending, but they have not had their affections changed. Some have yet to say yes to God. I'm all in and I'm all yours. They're still in control of their lives. They're still dead, as Paul says, in their sin. Some in more morally respectable ways and some in more morally detestable ways, but they're still dead in their sin because they're the ones who, still, who are still calling the shots in their lives. They're the ones who have tried to retain control. They're the ones who are just leasing space to God, saying, God, you can have access to this area, but not this area because of my particular emotional feelings about this. There are individuals who believe that they are alive, but they are actually dead because they are not committed to God's priorities or purposes, but their own. They have never been born again. They've never been born again. And Peter here in the text, he starts off talking about holiness earlier in chapter 1 and being this call to holiness, that we're called to be holy because God is holy, that we're called to resist our former ways of life. We're called to be free from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. We're called to radiate our hearts. We're called to have this reverence for God. But underneath all of that, Peter says, underneath all of that is the new birth, is the new birth. And apart from the new birth, all of that is absolutely impossible. It's absolutely impossible. And so what Peter teaches us about the new birth here in this text is absolutely vital to understanding what it looks like to live a holy life. And So this morning, we want to get underneath the commands to the calls and see what Peter says to us about what the new birth is. And first and foremost, listen to what Peter says about the new birth. Peter says the new birth is the foundation of a holy life. It's the foundation of a holy life. Now, this text contains, as we said before, it contains like a framework, right? And if you're building a house and you go out uh, and you, you, you hire a builder and they hire all the subcontractors and they come out and they begin to, to build a home for you. You've got the blueprints, right? You've got all the plans that are set out before you, and this is where the sinks are gonna go, and this is where the toilets are gonna go, the two most important things in a home, right? And here's where the showers are gonna go, and here's where the living room will be, and the kitchen will be, and all the appliances. So you got all the plans laid out before you if this is how how you are to build this home. So if they show up on site day one with a bunch of two-by-fours and begin to frame that thing up. Right? They begin to frame up the house. So the framework is what gives it structure, right? It's what, what kind of gives it a, a, a shape to it so you know what room this is to be used for and what, what particular purpose this room will be used for. But if they show up day one with all the framework and just kind of drop those two-by-fours on the mud... That house has no chance, right? You and I both know that because it has no foundation. And Peter says the foundation, while the framework provides shape for what the house is going to look like and how it's going to feel whenever you walk in, the foundation provides the support for that. And Peter says this, the new birth is absolutely foundational to the entire Christian life. The entire Christian life. Look at what he says in verse 23. In verse 23, he comes off of giving us this command to love one another earnestly, and he says, verse 23, the very first word in there is sense. Since." In other words, do these things because this has happened. You should obey these commands because this, there's, there's, been, there's been a change in, inside, internally. It's foundational. The new birth is foundational to every command that we are given within the scriptures. Listen, you can have all the plans and materials to build a mansion, but without the foundation, you're never going to get anywhere. You're never going to make any progress. And some of you may find yourself in that position. Maybe you've been in churches all your life, and you've gotten all the blueprints, right? You've gotten all the plans, and all the the framework is, is clear in your mind of what kind of life you should live, but you find yourself absolutely incapable of living it. Perhaps you've never had the foundation laid. The new birth is absolutely foundational. It's central to the entire Christian life. and In fact, Peter doesn't stop here and give us an excursus on it. I think this lends a little bit of credibility to this fact because he doesn't stop and go, let me explain to you what the new birth is. He just kind of runs right by it, assuming that his audience knows what he's talking about. So it must have been central to the apostles' message and to their preaching and teaching because they talked about the fact that you must be born again. They saw it in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You see it in John's writings. You see it in Peter's writings. You see it in Paul's writings. You see it off of Jesus' own lips. It's absolutely foundational. But for some of us in the room this morning, we may think, you know, the new birth, that sounds all very televangelist-like, right? The only place I've ever heard anybody talk about the new birth before is with televangelists or tent revival preachers, or people who are on death row, and they're highly emotional about what's about to happen to them, so they say they've been born again. They're just really emotional people. But based on what Peter says here, I want you to consider that there is, listen, there is no other kind of Christian other than the one who's been born again. The new birth isn't just for emotional people, and it's not just for televangelists, and it's not just for tent revivalists. But there is no Christian who has not experienced the new birth, and there is no one who's experienced the new birth who is not a Christian. Because the new birth is absolutely foundational. There's not a classification, right? There's not a political constituency called born again Christians and then the other Christians over here. (laughs) Because it's underneath the entire Christian life, it's absolutely foundational. I want you to consider what else Peter tells us about it. And he doesn't just say it's the cause underneath all of your Christianity. But he also says that the new birth is not just foundational, but it's also a supernatural and complete change. It's a supernatural and complete change. In verse 23, Peter says that the new birth does not come, he says, through perishable seed, but imperishable seed. And now what is the imperishable seed that Peter is thinking of? And I believe that he gives us in the very next phrase, the imperishable seed through which the new birth comes is the living and abiding word of God. So through the living and abiding word of God, this imperishable seed gets pressed and planted into us. And in the same way that natural birth doesn't come without generation, so new birth doesn't come without regeneration. A seed is required for natural birth, and a seed is required for spiritual birth, for the new birth. It's exactly what Peter says here. It's supernatural. It doesn't originate with you, but it originates with God. As the living and abiding word of God is preached, as it's proclaimed, as it's read and studied, discussed and talked about, God, God, God uses it. He flips the switch. Listen to how Martin Luther described this, this, what God does in the new birth. He says, God lets the word, the gospel, be scattered abroad and the seed falls in the hearts of men. Now wherever it sticks in the heart, the Holy Spirit is present. And that is so crucial that wherever it sticks, God is already active and at work. The Holy Spirit is there and is present and he makes a new man. Then there will be indeed another man of other thoughts and of other words and works Thus you are entirely changed. All that before you avoided, you now seek. And what you before sought, that you now avoid. It's a supernatural change where when the word of God goes forth, the Holy Spirit of God is in the heart and it's like, it's like a match. And the, the word of God is like kindling that's thrown onto this fire that sparks in the heart. And Luther says there's an entirely new man that comes forth from that fire that God lights. An entirely new man that comes forth. He says, listen to what he says, the things that you used to seek, now you avoid. Right? There was a life that you used to kind of pant after and pursue, and those priorities and purposes get turned upside down in the heart in such a way that the things you used to seek after, you're now moving away from, and the things that you used to move away from, now you're moving towards. So where you used to move away from God's word now you're moving towards it because it used to bring conviction in your life and now it brings comfort as well. Or you used to move away from the church and away from God's people and now you feel drawn towards them. Cuz you want to be in fellowship with other people whom God has lit the fire in their hearts as well. The things that you used to seek you now avoid the things that you used to avoid you now seek. It's a supernatural change that God brings about in the heart that produces a change in the life. Now, some of us might think, you know, well, listen, this, sounds, this is a little interesting to me because all I've really heard about Christianity before is that it's, it, that, that, that it's just kind of a reset button, right? I get to start over, I get to restart. But it seems what what Peter says here and what Jesus says in the Gospels and what the authors of the Gospels say and what Paul says in his writings is not that Christianity is just like a restart button on your computer, but it's the installation of a whole new operating system. A whole new operating system gets dropped into that machine, which then turns out these different abilities now. Whereas you once were resistant to God, now there is a a pliableness to to your heart that you are open to what God has to say now. There's a whole new operating system that gets dropped in. It's not just a restart button. And the reason that most of us think this is because if you go into the average Protestant church, even within our Bible Belt culture, what you're going to be what most of us have heard all of our lives is that Christianity is kind of a general pardon that we receive from God, that God loves us and he accepts us and he receives us, right? And so we get this forgiveness from God, a general pardon from God, and then Jesus becomes our example. And so we go out and we try and live by the by, by a kind of pattern of our lives after Jesus as best we can. So we're pardoned of our sin, we're forgiven by God, we're received. So now we do have a father, so we're pardoned and then we have a pattern for life going forward. And the majority of the average Protestant churches, that's kind of what the gospel has become. You get a pardon from God and Jesus becomes your pattern for living. But that's not what Peter says here. He says that Christianity is more than a, it's not less than a pardon from God. It's not less than forgiveness, but it's more than that. It's not just an opportunity to start over and try again this time. Listen, if that's all that Christianity is, if it's just a general pardon from God and then you get a chance to try and now pattern your life after the life of Jesus, that should not bring hope for you. It should bring despair. You should, any thinking person should be distraught. And here's why. Have you looked at his life? Have you looked at his life? The one who loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. The one who loved his neighbor as himself insofar as he laid his life down and went to the cross to be crucified for them. That was the extent of his love. One who was absolutely pure and there was no blemish or spot within his record. If Christianity is just a general pardon from God and now you get a chance to start over and try and pattern your life after the life of Jesus, that will not bring hope but despair because you will never live up to his pattern. You will buy your own resources and your own abilities. See, without the new birth and without God doing something internally and installing a new operating system in our lives, we are utterly lost and hopeless. There's no way that we can pursue the life of holiness that we're called to. It's a supernatural and complete change. A supernatural and complete change. Now, one of the ways that you know you've experienced this kind of supernatural and complete change in the new birth is because you begin to see things in ways that you never saw them before. Right, you begin to see things in ways you never saw them before. If you look in John chapter three, verse three, when Nicodemus comes to meet with Jesus. And Nicodemus is a very highly respected individual in his community. He's a Pharisee, he knows the Bible backwards and forwards. He's a very morally scrupulous individual, right? I think it's very interesting that Jesus has this conversation with this individual, right? If you think about the person who is the most religious and the most morally scrupulous, who knows the Bible backwards and forwards, has been to seminary and Bible college, and he knows, right? He's memorized the Old Testament. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you, Pharisee, you, individual who knows the Bible, has every verse memorized, you, person who kind of keeps all the, 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 the detestable sins out there. You might commit some respectable ones, but all the detestable ones are out there. You, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And he says, you won't even see the kingdom of God, This is what he says in John 3, 3. You won't even see it without the new birth. Without the supernatural work of God in your heart to bring about life where there was once death, and to bring about light where there was once darkness, you won't even see it. And what he means by that, I think, is this: is that you won't even perceive the values and vision of the kingdom of God. You won't even perceive or or, or recognize the commitments and commands of the kingdom. You, you you won't even be able to wrap your mind around the priorities and purposes of God's kingdom. You won't even be able to perceive these things. You won't be able to see them. And here's why. Here's why. Because every form of life, to every form of life, the next highest form of life is incomprehensible. And the next lowest form of life is like a living death. For instance, if you go out into the field out here and you go and pluck a few pieces of grass or a leaf off of a plant, you'll notice that that plant can sense some things, right? Um, Scientifically, plants can sense some things, but they can't see them. Right? They can't see. They don't have eyes to see things like animals do. Now, animals can see, right? They can see their environment around them. They can see where the hill is and where the valley is. They can see that it's raining or they can see that it's sunny. They can see these things. But an animal can't process emotions like human beings can process emotions. Right? So for every form of life... The next highest form of life is incomprehensible to them. And the lower form of life is kind of like a living death. And that's why we might say that if someone becomes completely incapacitated to where they're being kept alive by machines, they're like a vegetable. It's like a form of living death. So until there is spiritual life that is infused within the heart and God brings about a change, this imperishable seed takes root and begins to grow. And the Holy Spirit lights it on fire. You'll never perceive things as a child of God. You'll never understand the vision and values of the kingdom. See, some of you may have been in churches all of your life, and you've heard the gospel preached before, and you've heard people talk about a pardon from God, and you've heard people talk about this pattern for life now, but you've never had someone stand before you and say, that's never going to be a reality for you, unless you are born again because you will never be able to comprehend the kind of life that God calls you to apart from apart from that imperishable seed that needs to be planted in your heart to bring about that kind of life it's a supernatural and complete change where the things that you once sought you now avoid the things that you once avoided you now seek because that, that, that different form of life has now become comprehensible to you. So it's foundational. It's supernatural. It's a complete change. Complete change. But notice what else it is. Peter tells us as well that it's absolutely necessary. It's absolutely necessary. Richard Baxter, in a little book, Richard Baxter was a Puritan pastor In the 1600s, in a little book called The Call to the Unconverted, I don't know if it's little, it's a little hard to read, I might say it that way, some old English, but in his book, The Call to the Unconverted, he says this, he says, "...to be the people of God without regeneration is as impossible to be the children of men without generation. Seeing we are born God's enemies, we must be reborn His sons, or else remain enemies still." The greatest reformation of life that can be attained without this new life wrought in the soul may procure our further delusion, but never our salvation. That is a profound statement that he makes at the end of that sentence. He says, you can reform your behavior all your life. You can try and be a better person. You can try and be a good person. You can try and keep the rules more accurately he says but all that's going to do from you without God's regenerating work without the new birth and the heart and the soul all that's going to do is lead you further into delusion of thinking that you're alive when you're actually dead because you can keep the rules better than someone else or because your moral character looks a little bit better than the person (coughs) next to you it will just lead you into further delusion but he says never into salvation He says, until you come to a point where you recognize there is nothing, there's no amount of rule-keeping that I can uh, uh, achieve, and there's no amount of character that I can produce that's going to make me acceptable before God, you'll just be deluded and be walking around as a dead person who thinks that they are living. Look at the text. Peter says, uh, in verse 24, he says, the reason, sense, is the cause, right, Here's here's, here's what lies underneath all of your holiness. And then in verse 24, the very first word in the text is for. In other words, here's the reason it's got to be that way. Here's the reason it has to be that way. And listen to what he gives as the reason. He says, for all flesh is like grass. And it's glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. He means that every human being who is only born of perishable seed will wither and fall and fail. Every human being, right? So the glory of your human body will deteriorate in both your beauty and ability. You find this as you age, right? This is why for some of us, it takes us a lot more time in front of the mirror to make ourselves presentable for public consumption at 45 than it did at 25, okay? Because there's that, net, all flesh is like grass and it withers, it deteriorates. Right? This is why those who are, who, are, who are a little older in age and they may be in, in facilities that are assisted care facilities, why do they need assistance? Because their abilities have diminished over the course of time. All flesh is like grass, both in its physical beauty and physical abilities. There is an, ever, there's an endless diminishing. And Peter says this is exactly why it has to be this way. It's all like the flower that blooms one day and is gone the next. He says you're absolutely incapable of living a life of true holiness without the new birth because your flesh is limited. It's finite. All it does is wither and fail and fall. So the new birth is absolutely necessary. Now some of you go, well, well, listen, this all, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this because I'm I'm a pretty good person. Right? I don't cheat anybody. I pay my taxes. I don't cheat on my taxes. Right? I hadn't stolen something from someone. I hadn't knocked over a convenience store or tried to rip an ATM out of the, out of the ground. Right? I'm a pretty good person. I don't, I don't sleep around with other people. I've been faithful to my spouse. I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good person. So even with all, all of oh my goodness, what, what's the deal? Why is it so absolutely necessary? And for those of you who feel that way, for those of you who feel like, listen, I'm a, I'm a relatively good person compared to the next guy. Here's why you feel that way. It's because you've never really come to grips or terms with your own sinfulness and the depths of that sinfulness. In 1961, following World War II, the Nuremberg trials went on. And the Nuremberg trials were basically the trials against those who committed war crimes in Nazi Germany. And as a part of the Nuremberg trials, an individual by the name of Yahil de Testified, and he testified against a man named Adolf Eichmann. And Eichmann was one of the most feared Nazi controllers of his day who sent many, many individuals into what was certain death for them into the gas chambers of Auschwitz. And in an interview with Mike Wallace in the late late, um, late uh, I believe in the '70s. Uh, Mike Wallace sat down with Egil Deneur and interviewed him about coming into the courtroom and facing this man who had sent him some 18 years earlier to his what he believed to have been his certain death. Because when Deneur walked into the courtroom in 1961 to testify against Eichmann, he walked into the courtroom and he fell to his knees. And he began to sob uncontrollably. Then he fainted, collapsing in a heap on the floor as the presiding judicial officer continued to bang his gavel calling for order in the crowded courtroom. And so when Wallace, in this interview several years later, asked the nur about what was going through his mind in that moment, he asked him, was it, was it, were you overcome by fear? Walking face, coming face to face with this man that was so hated. Were you overcome by fear? Was it hatred? Was it horrible memories of what took place at his hands? So he goes through this series of questioning and the nerve finally responds to Wallace and says no. It was none of these things. It was none of them. And he goes on to explain to Wallace that it wasn't until that moment in that courtroom, as he looked face to face with Eichmann, that he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. He was not a god and he was not a demon. That Eichmann was an ordinary man the said, just like me. Just like me. And then the nurse said, and, and, and I quote, I was afraid about myself. In that moment, I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like him. Have you seen that yet? Have you seen that yet in your own heart? Have you come to see that as just as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that hatred that you harbor in your heart is the acorn of murder, the big grand oak tree. Or that lust that you harbor in your heart towards someone is the acorn of adultery. Have you seen that yet? That those acorns are, are in here. Have you come to see that though you grew up all of your life saying, I'm not going to be like my mom, I'm not going to be like my dad and the way that they treated me, the way they neglected me, the way that they abused me and the way that their anger spilled over at every occasion and yet now you find that you are more like them than you care to admit and you have no control over it? Have you seen that yet? Have you seen that you're like grass? And that your abilities... Are far lesser than what you estimate them to be. Have you come face to face with your own sin? And it's so interesting that Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, when he has a conversation with Nicodemus, he probably, John tells us, he did all kinds of other things that weren't recorded in the book. But why does John record this one in the way that he does? And here's why I think it was it's because Nicodemus had it all together, he thought he had it all together. And yet Jesus looks at him, even him, and says, you've got to be born, you must be born again. You will never see the vision and values of the kingdom. You will never understand the commitments and commands of the kingdom. You will never wrap your mind around its priorities and purposes. You must. It's absolutely necessary. Because Nicodemus was one of the types who wanted to compare himself maybe to perhaps individuals like Mary Magdalene, right, the street prostitute. And he goes, well, I'm up here and she's down here. And while that may be true morally, at least externally, right? There really is no discernible difference in the eyes of God. Listen, if I, if I were an Olympic long jumper, okay? An individual can jump maybe 28, 29 feet, all right? So it goes up against me who, at my best, very healthy, can, they can probably out jump me about 25 feet, all right? <laughs> I got a little bunny hop and they just leap and bound like this deer or gazelle, right? But if you took both of us and you lined us up on the shores of the Atlantic Ocean in Florida and we both got enough distance to have a running head start and we leaped off of the seawall out toward the ocean, man, both of us are going to get wet. Why? Because we can't leap across that ocean. The new birth is absolutely necessary because all flesh are like grass. Not only is it necessary, but it's also definite. Consider this with me. It's not only necessary, but it's also definite. Now listen, the term have been born again in the text is is what's called in the Greek text is a perfect tense verb. Here's what that means. A perfect tense verb was a verb, uh, described an action that took place at a definitive point in the past, but it has uh, uh, effects that carry forward into the present, right? So it's kind of like this. When a child is born, there's a definite moment in which that takes place, but because that occasion takes place, it has effects that carry on in the present, right? Some of you who are young parents, you know this very well, right? Because there was a moment, a place, a time, a location where that child was born, he wakes you up every three to four hours because he's wet or dirty or hungry. <laughs> and you walk around like a living zombie for like three months, four months, five months, if you're lucky. <laughs> right? Because there was a moment that took place it has effects that carry forward in the future. Because there was a moment that their birth happened on a specific day, a specific location, a specific time. They start to roll over or sit up or they crawl or they walk or they talk or they teeth or they lose teeth or they talk back. <laughs> Maybe that's just mine, right? So there's these things that happen because they were born. There was a moment that it happened because they were naturally born. All these things happen because something happened at a definitive moment, at a point in time, it took place. And the interesting thing about natural births, too, is that there's no two that happen exactly the same, are there? Because the spiritual birth is a definite moment. It's a point in the past that has effects that carry forward in the future. But you've got to be very careful because there are some who think, well, if you had not really been born again, if you can't nail down the place and time and location that you were in when that happened. But you've got to be very careful because no nat- two natural births happen the same way, do they? No. On September um, uh, what, 1st, 2007, Labor Day weekend, um, my wife was nine months pregnant with our firstborn child, Caleb. Um, and I can remember so vividly that Saturday morning of Labor Day weekend of her beginning to have contractions. And so at first they were really mild. Um, and so as the day progressed, they got a little bit more intense. And so we decided it was time to call the doctor and go to the hospital. And so we get to the hospital and they check her are like... Hmm. You can either stay here and pay us a lot of money, or you can go home and ride this thing out. We're like, okay, let's go home and ride this thing out. And so we went home, um, and she did, a, a she, so she labored all Saturday afternoon and Saturday night and into Sunday morning. All kind of subsided a little bit Sunday, then it picked back up all, sun, all during the day Sunday, and then into Sunday night, it got a little bit more intense, and it picked back up early Monday morning. So finally, we're like, For my lovely wife's, lovely bride's sake, we went to the hospital again, right? And they finally checked her and said, okay, something's happening. So let's get you set up here. We're going to have this child we believe today. And so literally by Monday afternoon at 4 o'clock, our firstborn makes his arrival into the world. So she starts laboring on Saturday night or Saturday morning. The kid doesn't come until Monday. But listen, there are some moms. You start talking to some moms who've had multiple children. And what they come to realize pretty quickly is that every child gets born, but they're not all born the same way. Some are like you got, you got the you know three days worth of contraction, some are like you got three hours worth of contraction, some are incredibly painful, some of you say, Well, I just felt a little bit of pressure and boom, there he was. Right? Back of the car on the way to the hospital. Right? Nolan Ryan standing, or you know, an umpire standing over your shoulders like a Nolan Ryan fastball coming out of there, right? So it just comes on out. Right? So they're, they're no they're all born, but they're, they're, they're different in the way that it happens way that it comes about. And the spiritual births are, are very similar. It's someone There's lots of contractions, lots of pain. And then all of a sudden you realize one day that you believe these things. But it, may take a long, it may take a long time. And maybe you go back and you can't really nail down exactly where it happened, but you know that it happened. C. Everett Koop, a former surgeon general of the United States, Wrote in his he passed away in 2013, but he wrote in his autobiography before he died about his conversion story. And I want you to hear how he describes how he came to faith, how he was born again. One Sunday evening, um, he was invited to 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He was a surgeon at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia before he became surgeon general. And they had a nurse that invited him to attend services there with him. He says the next Sunday after I finished my rounds, I found my feet taking me to 10th Presbyterian Church, just a few blocks north of the hospital. I entered the back door and quietly slipped up the balcony. I was just going to observe. I liked what I saw and I was fascinated by what I heard. I was just, I'm sorry. I, I saw the congregation respond willingly and generously to social needs. This was no empty religion. I heard teaching from one of the most learned men I ever knew, a true scholar who also possessed a gift of illustrating the complexity and simplicity of Christian doctrine by remarkable, incisive stories and similes. If only we had somebody like that here, right? I was interested enough to go back the next Sunday morning and then just a few hours later return for the evening service. I did that each Sunday for two years. Except when I was out of town, I would never miss a morning or evening service. And then he says, after about seven months, I realized that I had become a participant and not just an observer. What made sense to that congregation now made sense to me as well. And it was new to me. I wasn't just shifting gears from my parents' faith to one of my own. It was not until I sat in that Philadelphia church balcony that I understood the basics of the Christian gospel. That we are all sinners unable to satisfy God's standard of righteousness and justice no matter how hard we try. And he goes on to recount all the doctrines that he came to believe and own. But the interesting thing in that, in that is he, he, going back, he, could, he said, I can't put a finger on it. exactly when it happened. He said, but seven months after I showed up every morning and every evening to hear the preaching of God's word and fellowship with God's people, I realized one Sunday I wasn't just there as a spectator in the crowd who had bought, bought, a, bought a ticket, but I was actually engaged in what they believed, I believed. What made sense to them made sense to me, even though I could never put my finger on it, exactly when it happened. Or you compare his story to one like Martin Luther who you know, racked his brain and mind of years and years reading Romans 117 and thinking that he stood under God's condemnation, that the righteousness of God was God's righteous wrath poured out against his people. And Luther says he racked and prayed and racked his mind and prayed and prayed and prayed and finally there was a breakthrough moment when God shed light on Romans 117 and he realized that the righteousness of God was not his wrath, but there was a righteousness that appeared from God apart from the works of the law and that those who Those who live by faith are those who are declared righteous. And Luther says, it was like I was ushered up into the gates of paradise. Very climactic. Lots of emotion. Cooped month after month after month after month, sitting under the preaching of God's word. All of a sudden he realizes I'm not an observer anymore. I'm a participant. I don't know exactly when it happened, but it happened. Other people are like, I know exactly the day and time. I know exactly where I was. I can put my finger on that. It's necessary for all. And it's a definite moment that it happens at some point in our lives. Every birth, every birth happens, right? Every child is born. One's not more born than the other. They come about in different ways, but what matters is they all, they, they all come. They're all born. Have you been? Has there been a moment in your life where you realized that there was a shift for you, that you were no longer just an observer sitting in a seat somewhere, listening to preaching and singing music, mouthing words, but that your heart was actually engaged. You believed those things that you were singing. You believed those things that you found in the scriptures. Those words became honey to you. They weren't bitter to you any longer, but they were honey. You began to seek after them. Has that happened for you? Are you still just a dead person who is walking around amongst the living? Finally, as we close, notice what Peter says about the means by which this takes place. He says that this new birth is generated by the gospel. By the gospel. If you look at what he says in verse twenty-five, he talks about the we're all like all flesh is like grass, but the word of God is. Uh, abides forever and he says this word is the good news that was preached to you. See there was a moment for everyone that's been born again there was a moment in which you were sitting under the preaching of God's word you were reading the Bible you were discussing it in a small group somebody was sitting across a table from you explaining it to you and it was like God flipped the switch when you heard about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. God flipped the switch and you came to life. All of a sudden you begin to see, like Luther, going back through the pages of Scripture and seeing the beauty of the gospel on every page. God flipped the switch. When you heard what he had done, that it wasn't about what you could do. Has that happened for you? If that has not happened for you, you can have the plans of the most exquisite mansion ever built on the face of the earth, but there will be no foundation to support it. Let's pray together.